Amen. Thank you, choir. As they're making their way to their seats, let me ask you to remember Renol and Wilma Davis and Max and Laura Davis in our church. They, uh, they are headed down to Alabama where their brother George has passed away and making plans for the, for the family to gather for a funeral. So remember uh, Renol and Max in a special way in their travels and in their time of loss and grief. I know they would certainly appreciate your prayers for them. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, Back to Basics. And if you would find Matthew chapter 22 in your copy of the scripture, we're going to begin reading in verse 34, where Jesus entered into a discussion with the religious leaders when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And we're going to look at his response to that and what it means to each of us today. And so again, Matthew 22 and beginning in verse 34. And I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, please. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34, and we'll read down through verse 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Father, this is your word. It's inspired by your Holy Spirit. It's inerrant. It's perfect. Without flaw. And God, I pray that as you've authored these words, that you would open our hearts, each heart and mind, that we might understand these words and the importance of them for our Christian walk today. Lord, nothing is more basic than what we cover this morning. This is the foundation of it all, because even as Jesus concluded, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. God, I pray that in our daily lives, these two commandments would shape everything we do, everything we think, and everything we say. May we live lives for your glory, patterned after your desires for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, folks, when it comes to list, it seems like you can find list everywhere, can't you? In a fast-paced, frenzied world, we love list. We don't want to waste time with details. We don't want to waste time with long stories or explanations. We might say to somebody, okay, hurry up, boil it down, break it down, just tell me what you want me to do today. Now, sometimes our lists are filled with human pragmatism. You know, seven ways to have financial freedom. Three ways to have a marriage that sizzles. 
Five ways to be a better husband or father or employee. All of these kind of lists. Lists can be found everywhere. Just this past Friday, out in the parking lot, I was getting out of my vehicle and coming in the building, and, and uh, Bill Nolan was, was leaving. He had been in the buildings doing something, and we got to talking out in the parking lot, and it wasn't long before Bill said, Preacher, I got to go. I got a honeydew list to get done. We've got these lists. And what's the idea with the list? Just, again, boil it down. Don't waste my time. Just give me a quick checklist that I can do. I'm not criticizing lists, mind you. My point, though, is that, that everybody's looking for a list. If I can only do X, Y, Z, then I'm home free. If I can do such and such, I'll be a successful dad. My kids will see me as a good mom. If I can do such and such, I'll be a successful student. If I can do such and such, I might get a raise this year. We are a checklist society. And now guys, this can get us in trouble sometimes too, right? You've been there. Your wife is telling you a story and you think there's something that she's asking of you. You kind of want to, uh, you think she's wanting you to solve the problem. And you say, honey, just stop right there. What is it that you want me to do? And she says, shut up. I don't want you to do anything. I'm just wanting you to listen to my story and hear what I went through. Again, we're looking for a list. My guess is most of us this morning have a list already, at least in our minds, of things that we want to accomplish this week. You know, sometimes in the Bible we see things boil down quickly and simply for us too, don't we? I think of Micah 6.8. Micah says, He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Habakkuk makes it even more simple. In Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. I mean, that's about as simple as it gets, right? You can put that one on a bumper sticker. Well, folks, all of this was no different in Jesus' day. Keep your Bibles open to Matthew 22 because I want us to see this today. If we were to go back and read the context of our passage, we would see that it is a part of ongoing controversies that Jesus had with the religious leaders. There are three great controversies in Matthew 22. The religious leaders were trying to entrap Jesus. And so they presented him with a coin. And they wanted to know whether or not they were supposed to pay taxes or not. You see, they thought they could entrap him with this one. Because if he said, no, don't pay taxes, then they could have reported him to the Roman authorities. And he would have been arrested as somebody causing an insurrection against the government. But then if he said, yes, pay your taxes, then the Jews would have said he's a sellout to the Romans. He's a, a compromiser. And so what Jesus say? Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. So render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now folks, there's an important lesson there. 
Because even as a coin has the image of Caesar on it, your life has the imprint of God upon it. Because the book of Genesis says you're made in the very image of God. And so if they were to render to Caesar what Caesar's because God's imprint is on your life, you're to give your life back to God. And then the Sadducees asked him about resurrection and the marriage. I mean, this is a good one. The Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. They're trying to trap him. And they say, Lord, here's here's a guy that uh, he, uh, you know, he marries his high school sweetheart. And not long, into the, not long into the marriage, he dies. And because of the leveret laws regarding marriage in the Old Testament, his brother is supposed to marry the widow if they didn't have any children in the first marriage, the brother that died, because you're supposed to raise up descendants or heirs for your dead brother. And so the second brother marries her, he dies. Well, they got a third brother. He marries her. He dies. So forth and so on down through the list. She marries seven brothers. I should say seven brothers marry her and then they all die. They get in heaven and and they ask him, Lord, whose wife is she going to be? And they try to entrap him with that one. And finally, as we see in our text this morning, they want to know what's the greatest commandment of all. They want to get him in a a debate with different rabbis and different religious schools over this one. and, And they want to try to entrap him. In fact, they ask him this as a test. Now folks, there were endless debates over this question. When you look at the Mosaic law, you begin with the Ten Commandments. But God's laws don't stop there. There are 613 commandments that build off of the original Ten Commandments. There's 248 that are positive and 365 that are negative. And then David in Psalm 15 takes these 613 commandments and he narrows them down to 11. Isaiah takes these 11 and in Isaiah 33 he narrows them down to 6. And Micah whom I mentioned a moment ago takes these 6 and narrows it down to 3. And Habakkuk again I mentioned a moment ago he takes the 3 and he says it's as simple as this. The just shall live by faith. And so there were all kinds of debates. What's the greatest commandment? What does God really expect of me? What does God really want? What's the most important commandments that I need to make sure that I'm obeying in my life? Somebody's thinking might have been okay. You know, it's bad enough to break any commandment, but I certainly don't want to break a major commandment. So what's the greatest? Now complicating all of this was the fact that the the Pharisees and lawyers of Jesus' day wrote their commentaries on, on all of the laws and they elevated their commentary points to sometimes an equal or even a superior status to God's law. 
They added layer upon layer and tradition upon tradition to God's word. And they ended up making God's word a burden. It was a mess for the everyday common man trying to obey the scripture. And so it's in a context like that that we need to understand this passage. So this lawyer steps up and asks Jesus a question. Again, so typical. The lawyers back then were always arguing and debating. I guess some things with lawyers never seem to change. But they would debate over the most important. You may recall on one occasion how Jesus said, You tithe on your mint and dill and cumin. That is, the herbs in your garden, you're you're legalistic about tithing on all of those herbs, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faith. Well, I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He enters into this discussion. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't sidestep it. He enters right into the heart of it. And he speaks to the most important issues of life. Now, folks, get this down. Don't miss this this morning. Jesus speaks to the most important matters of life. And Jesus tells us what's most important. I mean, this is better than E.F. Hutton speaking, right? The message this morning couldn't be any more basic, but it couldn't also be any more important. I mean, just think about this. What if you had the opportunity to sit down with Jesus this week and ask him a question, Jesus, what do you really want of me? What do you really expect of me? Well, the message this morning, the passage this morning, is going to answer that question for us. And so we dare not overlook this. This passage explains the one thing that you and I must be about in our lives. I want you to think about this text this week too, okay? I hope you and I will wake up with this text in our every relationship we have this week, every business scenario you get in, every conversation you have with your spouse and your children, everything you do in your life, even how you might engage in your hobbies. I want you to think about the most important things that God is asking of you. I hope you'll take some notes this morning. Number one, I want you to see that Christians today need to reclaim what Christ said is most essential to life. Christians today need to reclaim what Christ said is most essential to life. First of all, what we see Jesus doing is quoting the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 9. And that passage reads like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You 
you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That was known as the Shema. And dedicated Orthodox Jews would repeat that at least twice a day. When a Jewish couple was putting their children to bed at night for their nighttime prayers, they would repeat together the Shema when they would go into the temple or the synagogue to worship or to give sacrifices. They would quote aloud together the Shema. They would even go so far as to write the words down on little tiny scrolls and put them in little boxes called phylacteries and they would tie that box around their forehead so they could literally put these laws, these commandments on their foreheads as Deuteronomy said. Or they would, they would use a leather strap and they would tie it around their arm. They would also have mezuzahs. Again, little boxes that they would put on the doorposts, the frames of their house. The outside door and then any inside door unless the door went into a bathroom or a laundry room. But, but not... But, Aside from that, any room on the interior of the house, you might see these mezuzahs, these little boxes. And inside that would be a scroll with the Shema written on it. When Connie and I traveled to Israel and, and we were in a hotel down by the Dead Sea, you walked down the hall to your hotel room and sure enough on the door frame was this little box and inside would have been a scroll containing these verses. And so the importance of the Shema would have been questioned by nobody. And that's what Jesus in, in this passage is touching on. He's touching on the Shema. He's basically repeating part of it. And saying this is what is most important. He's talking about a love here that involves a God-centered life. Oswald Chambers once wrote, The surest sign that God has done a work of grace in my heart is that I love Jesus Christ best. Not weakly and faintly, not merely intellectually, but passionately, personally, and with devotion. Overwhelming every other love of my life. Folks, that's the kind of love and devotion God deserves. He deserves our highest praise. And you know something? This is what stands out in all of the great Bible characters, isn't it? Think about some of them with me for a moment. Abraham. The Bible calls Abraham the friend of God. God called Abraham to leave a foreign country and go to a new place and God was going to build a new people out of him. And Abraham obeyed God and he followed God. He loved God. He loved God with all of his heart. He was willing to give up everything. He was willing to sacrifice everything to follow God's commands on his life and God's call on his life. And then one day God gives Abraham and his wife a son in their old age. I mean, imagine that. It was God's promise to them and God delivered on his promise. That shouldn't surprise us a bit. That's the kind of God we serve. And then one day God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, 
And I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there to me. Now we know God didn't actually want him to do that because God stopped him. The Old Testament condemns child sacrifice. But the Canaanites around the Israelites, they would sacrifice their children to their pagan gods. So my guess is God just wanted to test Abraham. Do you love me, the true and the living God, as much as your neighbors around you love their false gods? And amazingly, you know what? Abraham did love God that way. And so he carried Isaac. And he was about to make the sacrifice. And, and, and God stopped him. I think of Esther. Queen Esther. Mordecai said to her, your entire people are about to be obliterated. We're about to be exterminated from the face of the earth. For such a time as this, God has put you in the place in your life where you are right now. You need to go into the king and you need to appeal on behalf of your people and you need to stop this wicked plan of Haman. And Esther said to her uncle Mordecai, you don't understand the king has not summoned me. He's not extended the gold scepter to me. And if I go into his presence without him extending the scepter to me and without an official invitation, I might lose my life. But in the end, what did she say? She said, if I die, I die. So be it. She loved God with all of her heart, all of her life. Even to the point if she had to lay down her life for him, she was willing to do that. I think of King David, a little boy, shepherd boy, big nine foot giant coming out challenging all of the troops in Israel. And they're trembling in fear. Nobody will take on Goliath. David slips out of the ranks and says, I will because he's mocking our God. And nobody ought to be allowed to mock our God. And so David takes a slingshot and he kills Goliath. But then we know about David's life, his sin with Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband to cover that up. And yet God said of David, here is somebody who has a heart for me. He loves me. Imagine that, folks. Despite all of David's sin and all of his problems, he loved God with all of his heart. And I hope that'll give some encouragement to somebody here today that might say, you know what, I, I might love God, but will God really accept me in light of what I've done? Yes, he will. God loves you. But again, I just think about all these biblical characters who live with this attitude that, I'm going to put God above all. I think of the saints that Revelation 12 speaks of. Revelation 12, 11, As the saints in the end times are going through the tribulation. It says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. By the, by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Here were people who again just like the biblical characters of old. Were willing to lay down their lives because they really did love God with all their hearts. And that's what Jesus is calling on each of us to do here. You see folks, what I'm trying to say is this is not to be something that we simply read about in the scripture with, with characters in the Old Testament or the New Testament. This is a kind of love and devotion 
that is to be seen today in your life and my life. A love for Christ that is above all. That you and I would sacrifice anything for Him. We would even lay down our lives for Him if the situation demanded it. Now notice on top of this type of love, and the word is agape love, by the way. You'll see how Jesus divided up our lives here, not to limit, but rather to expand. He said, love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then you read this same passage in Mark chapter 12, and we also see the word strength added. Now, we tend to divide up life like this in order to limit. We might say to somebody that we're going through a difficult time with, you know, I love you with my head because I know that's what I'm commanded to do, but in my heart right now, I don't much like you. So we'll divide up life like that in order to kind of limit, draw limits, draw lines in the sand. But Jesus is doing just the opposite here. He's dividing up a man's life in order to emphasize and expand. He's emphasizing that we're to love God with the totality of our being. Everything we are and everything we have with our very existence. And so totality is the picture here. But if it helps you to think about each of these different areas separately, well, let's do that too. Think about the heart, loving God with all your heart. That involves our emotions, and folks, emotions are not bad. Somebody comes into church and says, you know what, we need to be stoic. Well, that's fine if that's how you worship. Other people might cry in worship or shout amen or raise their hands. Their hearts are deeply touched by emotions and they've got to express that. And that's good too. We're to love God with our emotions. We're to have a warm heart toward God. We're certainly not to have a cold, dead orthodoxy. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your emotions? You're to love God with all your soul. We could say this is the spiritual side to life. You and I are to feed our spirit. We're not just flesh and bone afterward, uh, in other words. We're more than just flesh and bone. You know, the world approaches life, human life, those who don't believe in God, as though we're just flesh and bone. That's all. And when you die, you die. But you know, the Bible says mankind is more than that. You look back at the creation account in Genesis, and the Bible says when God created Adam, he breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. The Bible doesn't say that about the animals or the plants or anything, but it says that about Adam. You see, mankind also has a soul. We have a spirit. We're to love God not only with all of our heart, our emotions, but also our spirit. Your soul is going to live somewhere for all of eternity. You and I need to think about that. We're to love God with our intellect, with the mind. He talks about that here. Are you loving God with your mind? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, as 2 Peter 3.18 says? 
Folks, never before has the church, have Christians had the resources you and I have at our fingertips today to love God with all of our minds. I mean, think about it. Christians a hundred years ago would have, would have loved to have had what we have available to us today. On our church website, I think of something we've offered, Right Now Media. So many wonderful Bible studies. There's topical studies, studies on marriage and the family and on parenting and on Christian finances. And, and then your Christian growth and different book studies of the Bible. All of that is right at our fingertips. We have so many wonderful opportunities today to love God with all of our mind. Are we doing that? Are we taking advantage of some of these opportunities that we have? Folks, if you think about it, we're without excuse. And as I mentioned earlier, Mark includes strength in the list because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, strength or might shows up in that list in the Shema. Maybe Matthew's just abbreviating a bit. But let's think of your strength, your, your energy. When you wake up, you may expend your energy at the gym. Nothing wrong with that. You may run around the block or walk around the block. Your strength is poured out in exercise. Well, think about loving God with all your strength, all of your energy. Can you say that you devote the best of your strength, the best of your energy to loving God? I mean, folks, it's a convicting passage if you think about it, right? Again, what's Jesus talking about? The totality of your life. Everything you do, everything you are, every activity you're about, every relationship you have, with the totality of your being, you're to be loving God, an all-out love, an all-out surrender to, to the Lord, a God-centered life in all that you do. That's what is supposed to characterize the normal Christian life. I mean, again, that's back to basics. That's as basic as it can be. And you know what? When you think about this too, just, just think about this. Jesus, we, we think of modeling our lives after the Lord Jesus. You know, we, we know very little about the early days of Jesus in the Scripture. We're told almost nothing. But in Luke chapter 2, Jesus tells us at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus grew and growth ties in with, with loving God and seeking Him and putting Him first. That Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew physically, intellectually, spiritually, and socially. And so just like we love God with, with our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, we're to grow in those areas. Because again, we know Jesus modeled this. This is a command that he modeled with his own earthly life. Will you and I love God that way this year? We've got to be in God's word. We've got to be in prayer. We've got to be a part of the fellowship of God's people, the church. 
We've got to serve because after all, we love Jesus by loving His church and using our spiritual gifts, just like Pastor Seeger read earlier, using our spiritual gifts uh, in the church to build up other believers and minister to other believers. You know, too many Christians say they love God, but they're not about the Master's business. They're kind of like the young man that said, walked up to General George Washington during the Revolutionary War on one occasion, said, George Washington, I just want you to know, I love you and everything you're doing. And he looked at that young man and said, what regiment do you serve in? He said, oh, I don't serve in a regiment. I just want you to know, I love you and respect you and I'm with you. And George Washington looked at him and said, if you love me and respect me and with me, change your civilian clothes, turn them in and put on a uniform and serve. Christians need to hear that. Folks, let's not forget that in the midst of a pandemic. A pandemic does not negate the scriptural commands of what God's people are supposed to be doing, loving God by serving His people. Jesus said when you take all the commandments in the Bible and you look at all of them, I mean, think about writing down 613 commandments individually. If you were to do that and read each and every one of them very carefully, this one right here would come out on top above all. Top of the list. Now here's another thought about this. What about the lost man? People all over the world, some who even reject Christ, say that they love God. You can't really truly love God apart from Christ, the redemption that Christ gives you. He's the one who reconciles us to God. He's the one who redeems us. He's the one who makes it possible for you and I to have a relationship with God and to know Him in a personal way. And so somebody without Christ, they may think they love God, but they really can't love God this way. Because they're still at odds with God. They're still, the Bible describes them as enemies of God. But they can be friends with God and they can love God if they're reconciled to Him through faith in Christ. There's very good people in the world, good in the eyes of men, who nonetheless are enemies of God. And may not love God the way they think they do because they're rejecting Christ. I say all of this because there may be somebody here this morning who really can't truly obey verse 37 here until first of all you come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's the point of this story in Mark's gospel. Mark Mark gives the lawyer's response. The lawyer responds to Jesus by saying, You're right. You've answered well. And Jesus says to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say to him, You're in the kingdom, but rather, You're not far from the kingdom. You see, the lawyer knew the right answer about loving God, but he was still a part of a group who was rejecting Jesus Christ. And so to be in the kingdom, 
and to truly love God the way he's talking about here, you've got to first of all come to faith in Christ. And that's the place, that's the very place some of you may be at here this morning. Folks, you never know who, who you might impact if you, if you love God this way. If you have that kind of God-centered life, God above all, you love Him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You love Him that way. There's no telling who you might impact by having that kind of devotion to God. I think of a true story about this. A young lady in Richmond, Virginia, back in 2009, she'd just gotten engaged. And she and her fiancé attended the Grove, Grove Avenue Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. I've actually been in that church before for a conference I attended one time. And she and her fiancé were members of that church and active in that church. And she was a young lady who really lived out this passage. And one day she's out traveling around the city in her car getting ready for her wedding that was about to arrive. And she's buying some last minute things and running errands. And she was involved in a traffic accident and she lost her life. And the officers on scene, they're... They're there with the body that, as I say, it's a fatal accident. And they're rummaging through her stuff, trying to figure out who to call. And the one number she had that they could call was her fiancé. And they had to call him and break the news. Could you imagine getting that kind of news? And while the fiancé was coming to the accident scene, the officer said they, they were going through her belongings trying to find out more about her. And this one officer could tell, here is, a, here is a Christian lady. Her life is all about Jesus. When the fiancé got there, the officer actually started asking the fiancé about this lady. Something really touched his heart about this lady. Do you know on that accident scene before they left that day, the fiancé, the grieving fiancé, had the opportunity of leading that police officer to faith in Christ. True story. And so church, we need to love God this way. That if... Somebody could examine our lives, go through our lives, closely look at everything. They would conclude, we were a person who puts Christ above all. And hopefully they'd be drawn to that. Well, secondly, I want you to notice, Christians today need to reassert a proper biblical love. Look at verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is again quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19 verse 18. If I truly love God with all my mind, heart, soul, and strength... I will also love the world. Now, not the world in the sense of the world system. First John says that's the, that's the world we aren't to love. The world system that is against God. But we're to love the people of the world. Somebody as well said, love may not, may not make the world go around, but it sure does make the trip worthwhile. 
I think what Leviticus 19.18 assumes is that we do in fact love ourselves. I think God put that in us, a, a self-preservation. We tend to ourselves, we bathe, we, we exercise, we, we sleep when we're tired, we, we eat nutritional food, hopefully. We make decisions about our life based on how those decisions are going to affect us. We try to protect and preserve our lives. Now we know with the fall of man in, in Genesis chapter 3, love for self has been perverted and corrupted. It's become this self-absorbed type of love that's ugly and selfish and self-centered. But putting that aside... Jesus is saying you need to love others the way that you already love yourself. As a Christian who's focused first and foremost on God, don't let yourself be the object of all your affections. Love God and love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Given the opportunity to invest in things or in people, we need to invest in people. Folks, we don't need to be so task-oriented in our lives that we forget about people. The people around us. The people that God has put in our lives. Jesus came to die for people. People matter. Now that brings up a question, doesn't it? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? Is your neighbor the family that lives beside you on the same street? Is your neighbor somebody in church that's just like you? I mean, that's what the typical Jew would have thought, right? My neighbor is a fellow Jew who's just like me. Well, of course, it includes that person. But Jesus taught in, in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan that your neighbor is anybody who needs you. Now, to the typical Jew, a Samaritan would have been an enemy. They despised one another. But in that story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan was the hero of the story. And what did Jesus tell his fellow Jews? You need to go and do likewise. You need to be like him. Your neighbor is whoever needs you. It doesn't matter what they look like or what they do if there's somebody in need around you you need to love them as you would love yourself folks sometimes God will bring people across your path who desperately need you sometimes people bring folks into our church who desperately need us it may be somebody that's crossed your path at work or school or in your neighborhood who's reaching out to you in sort of a quiet way. They're not going to take much of an initiative, but they need you. Somebody comes to church, and, and we may not notice them that much, but they need us. It's no accident who God brings into our lives. We need to pay attention. We need to say, God, give, us, give me your eyes and your ears and your heart for people that, that cross my path every day. They're our neighbors. And love your neighbor as yourself. And of course the scripture points out that you love your neighbor as yourself by doing tangible deeds. Not just words, not just saying you love somebody, but actually showing it. How about right now? You might have a senior adult couple next door to you that is scared to death right now about venturing out and going anywhere. 
How about doing something for them that they need right now? That would be a way to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about what you want people saying about you. If somebody says something about you that's not true, for example, you wouldn't like that, would you? Or maybe, maybe it was something that shouldn't be repeated or broadcast. You know, in this day of social media, what are you posting about others? What are you saying about others? What, what are you saying on your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it might be? Are you guilty of gossip? Are you guilty of being unkind? Are you guilty of slander? Would you want somebody saying those things about you? And the obvious answer is what? No. Well, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't engage in that. Treat others and speak to others and respect others just like you would want the same from them. That's the standard. And notice verse 40 what Jesus said. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now it's not saying that no other commandments in the scripture are given. You know if that's all we needed we really wouldn't need a Bible with 66 books. He's not saying that, that all other parts of the Bible aren't needed. What he's saying is all other parts of the Bible grow out of those two commandments. If you think about it. Because much of the Bible is addressing what? The vertical relationship we have to God. If I'm loving God with all my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind, every part of me, the totality of my being, all those commandments in the Bible that have to do with the vertical relationship, you know what? I'm doing those too because I'm obeying this one. All, many commandments in the Bible have to do with horizontal relationship we have with other people. If I'm truly loving my neighbor as myself, guess what? I'm doing all those other things too. And so you can see how this is a summary. Everything else grows out of, out of these two. And so Jesus said, in that sense, when we're obeying these two commands, we're taking care of everything else we're supposed to be doing also. And that's why I say this week, whatever situation you're in, whatever relationship, whatever trial, whatever event you're a part of, whatever business deal you might be a part of, sales event, classroom, Social media activity, whatever it is, am I loving God with the totality of my being and am I loving my neighbor as myself? I mean, that really boils it down, doesn't it? That's about as simple as it gets. I'm not saying it's simple, but I'm just saying that's about as simple as it gets. Back to basics. I want you to think about something as I close this morning. Think of the word mega or megale. That's, that's the Greek word here for great or greatest. Depending on what form it's in here. Mega or megale. Teacher. Teacher. What is the megale commandment in the law? That was the question. 
What word do we get from mega? What do we think of? Big, huge, great. So here's my question. Is your life and my life going to be about small things? Or are we going to be about big things, great things? Last thing I want on my tombstone one day is he wasted his life with small things that don't matter. Folks, we're being invited to join God in mega things. And the mega thing is loving God with the totality of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to know what God expects of you, there it is. That's what he expects of you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this question, even though it was in the midst of controversy with religious leaders, how they were challenging Jesus and testing Jesus. And yet even out of those situations, we learn marvelous things that Jesus told. Father, we thank you for this particular question and the response. May we use this passage to examine our own hearts this week. As I've already mentioned, Every situation and relationship we get in, as basic as it gets, am I loving God with the whole of my being? Am I loving others as I love myself and want others to treat me? God, I pray that you'd forgive us for wherein we have failed on either, either of these subject matters. God, I pray that our hearts would be returned to you. Jeremiah 2, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth when you really loved me and followed me in the wilderness. But now you've turned away. You've dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And you were saying to your people, return to me, return to me. And I will be your God and you will be my people. God, I pray that Whoever needs to hear these words this morning about loving God with all of their being, I pray that they would return to you in that. For Christians who've been guilty of acting towards others more like what they see in the world, God, I pray that we would turn away from that and we would turn towards your command here to love our neighbors as ourselves. That we'd be salt and light in that. Will we stand out? Will we be different? Yes. And that's the point. Jesus said you're to be salt and you're to be light. People are to look at your life and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God, I do pray that we'd be different. That we'd be your people on mission. In a dark world. The world has never needed Christians to live as Christians any more than what the world needs today. And God, I pray that we'd answer the call.
And if there is somebody here this morning that needs to begin loving you by surrendering their life and coming to Christ, God, give them the courage to admit that and to come forward this morning and say, pray for me and pray with me. I need Jesus. I need to be reconciled to God through faith in His Son. And I pray that that would be their commitment this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Thank you.